Welcome to the lamppost. All right. This week, we're here with Dan, Daniel Kessner, who is my brother-in-law. Yeah, brother. <laughs> yes. And uh, we are here in Bergen, Norway, which is where he and my sister live, and I'm visiting them. And uh, thanks for coming on the show, Dan. Yeah. Glad to be here. Yeah. So uh, Dan is a scientist, and it's the reason why they moved here. Um, you want to give us some, just a brief kind of intro on what, what you're doing? Yeah. Um, I, I have a PhD in oceanography, uh, and the, the main focus of my study was ocean optics. So it's, it's, it's using like light, uh, visible light as a, like a tool to study the ocean and understand what's in the, the water and what makes it turn blue or green or red. Um, and through that knowledge, we can build out these, uh, pretty sophisticated tools like satellites and, uh, these robots that sample the water for us. Uh, and, uh, we can get some, uh, useful knowledge about what's going on in the ocean. Mm. Uh, nice. Yeah. Nice. So one of the things that I wanted to get into this week was, Essentially, the, the scientific method and what that means and how scientists use it, how you use it, use it, if you use it in your daily life or just in science, and uh, what, is it, what does it mean to you? Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good question. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess I feel like often I'm still like running on some combination of like intuition and, um, like, uh, sure. When I'm planning some experiment out, I, you know, I put a lot of thought into, uh, establishing like protocols and methods that can be repeated. And, um, so that when we, <laughs> this is super abstract. So when we gather a lot of data, we can, we can trust the data, mm-hmm. uh, trust the, the, the observations. Uh, so like, and I, and I think, you know, I'm an observational scientist. I think that's a really important part of what I do. Mm-hmm. I don't actually do a ton of theory. Um, so I focus on, on collecting information and processing that information to gain insight about the ocean. Uh, so for me, uh, I spent a lot of time about thinking about methods, thinking about being consistent and precise and looking really close into the, into like the, the details, uh, and, uh, questioning and repeating (laughs) and, uh, yeah. So, uh, and I feel like sometimes I feel like that's like my entire existence and I have a hard time turning that off. So like, I'll be doing the dishes, right. And I'll be like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like sc- scrubbing it till it's like perfect, you know. And, and meanwhile, meanwhile, Shay is like cleaned half the house. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I guess I don't know if that completely answers. You. Yeah, I, I use the word intuition there at the beginning, yeah. and I'm curious 
what role that plays? Is that how you decide what methods you or what sort of uh, like? I'm not even sure how to articulate the question exactly, but you use the word intuition. I'm just curious how that functions in, in the process. Yeah, I know. It's kind of interesting because I feel like, uh, you know, it's like we want to pretend that science is like super objective and like, um, and I feel like it's not. <laughs> and I think that sort of, I, I, I'm not like, I don't like the word expert. I, I like saying I have expertise, right? But, you know, at a certain point, like you start to gain this sort of intuition about what's going on and what could be going wrong. And um, yeah, so a lot of times when I'm looking at results or data, like I kind of trust my intuition and my, 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 my instincts and feelings about, about the process and uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But there's something going on, you know, and right. I think there's something there's so, I, I, so like, like me personally, like I really do believe in this sort of like um, there's something sort of non-physical about the world mm -hmm. that I think we have access to. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes um, I can sort of just pick at that a little bit to sort of gain some insight or, um, but it's very, it's very much not scientific. I think. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's that's. Like oh, I think that's interesting because that is like you were saying. One of the illusions or conceptions of science is that it's very objective, but of course, there's a lot of epistemological elements and like the limitations of our knowledge and limitations of our ability to observe something separate from ourselves. Like we're always implicated in what we're observing. Right. And right. so Absolutely. there is some real limitations that are included in that fact. Mm. Um, and, yeah. And do you ever have, do you ever have, does it ever happen where you have an intuition and you're like, oh, if I modify this method of capture, um, I might get the, get these results. And it turns out that, you know, you know, the data is the data. It's, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't have an opinion. Yeah. And like, if, if you find out your, your intuition might've been wrong, like how does that feel? Or oh, yeah. how does, cause you have to accept the data for yeah. what it is. You can't yeah. like fudge the numbers necessarily. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. Feelings totally get involved. Like, um, uh, yeah, like having some intuition or hypothesis, and then it turns out like mm. it's, the data's not showing that. Right. Uh, like I, I do think that we don't talk about it in my community um, a lot, but like it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, su <laughs> it, it sucks to feel like, you know, you spend all this time looking for something and it's not there. Right. And um, I also like, I just, a lot of time, like I deal with big data, I, I think I would consider it. So lots of options, lots of variables. And, you know, we plot this for that and this for that. And, you know, sometimes I do feel like you get lucky, like, mm. ooh, I found a trend here. Mm. You know, I wasn't expecting it. And, you know, you've started following that, that, that thread. Uh, and that, that's what happened to me, at least with part of my PhD. Uh, and it's like, 
I'm just sitting here thinking like, I have no idea like if that was luck or like that was like past knowledge that I didn't like, mm. you know, completely materialize right. yet or, you know, or there was some like, yeah, like what I like to think of as like some, you know, magical essence mm-hmm. that sort of like, you know, sprinkled something on me and said, right. oh yeah, look at this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, yeah. I could see, especially, uh, you know, when it comes to funding, because scientists, yeah you know, rely on funding mm-hmm. and you have to make proposals that I guess need to seem interesting and have yeah. to be funded. And so is there like, do scientists sometimes, even though they probably don't admit it, you know, make things seem a little more uh, special and uh, exciting than possibly it actually is? I, yeah, I, I think I think, well, I would say that the one thing that I think is consistent that at least I am, I do. And I think, um, it's, I don't know if it's directly encouraged, but when proposing stuff to get funding, um, oversimplifying it and and it's really a strategic choice. Uh, so like when we do that, we, we make it seem like it's easier than it is. Right. And that we'll get results when in reality we're going to struggle and it's going to be messy and the results will not be clear even after the end of this five year funding period. Uh, but we sort of, I feel like write the proposal as if, you know, it's easier than, uh, than it actually is. Uh, and it's strategic because you have, you don't have, you have diverse people reviewing it and making decisions about the funding. Right. And, and also like, uh, I'm also like really early career. <laughs> so like, I, I haven't even been that successful. And so, you know, I, I'm, I would say, I, I probably don't want to talk much more about it <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, uh, but what it seems like is that, yeah, we tend to oversimplify in proposals. Um, yeah. Right. And then you want, you want the, the committee or whoever is doing the funding to understand yeah, clearly exactly. yeah, understand. What, yeah. what's going but on. But it does seem like a little bit like, Ooh, is this, is this appropriate? Is this ethical? Is this, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, but, um, yeah, it's a journey I'm on right now. Like I've only submitted one major proposal and I was rejected, but it did well. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm recent, I resubmitted it and, you know, I'm thinking a lot about this stuff right now, but yeah. So we can, Yeah, the we can move on if you want to, but I am curious <laughs> about this this role of funding in science because yeah. I think that um it feels from the outside that at times there can be a conflict of interests. And yeah. and, and this isn't of course just limited to science. I mean, this is pretty much in any field that you end up going into, but it seems uh potentially more dangerous in science since we rely on science so much to shape how we view the world and the direction in which we decide to proceed. Um, And so a study would come out and you might think, well, this is the proper way to proceed. But then it turns out that maybe there was uh, just the the people who funded it. It's hard to, okay, this is what I'm trying to say from the outside. Mm. It's hard Mm. for me to know how to interpret different studies that say completely different things. Um, and some of that I think has to do with trying to figure out who funded it, but then some of it I don't think is just about that. And I'm just not sure um, yeah. how to sort through all that. <laughs> yeah, because there's a lot of play, right? It's like 
A, I, I want to publish something mm-hmm. that's, you know, gets attention. Right. And that's good for my career. It's not even about funding there. It's right. About, yeah. I mean, it, it is, but it's indirectly. It's about mm-hmm. pre- prestige, you know, so that that's a, a player in this game. Um, funding, I think, is interesting. And I think a lot about a very specific um, thing because it, it's a, it, it's something I, I, I ask myself a lot about is do I want to work in industry or not? Mm. And, and that's somewhere or I, I start, I, the more I think about it, the more I believe that science uh, basic research should never be done in a commercial setting. So I think, and I think a lot of times when you think about these studies where like conflicting results are coming out, um, we're talking about like, it's often funded by some agents, some like, you know, the meat industry or whatever it is. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Or like the, that, the big tobacco. Right. And so there are, there are companies that are scientists who con- consult. And, and so some, someone like big tobacco says, Hey, we want to study about this. And then the scientists at that organization do that study mm-hmm. and provide results. And, you know, I think that's when you have a real issue with conflict you know, with conflict of interest. Whereas in the sort of university sector where you have government funding, um, I, I think that's less of an issue. And I think, you know, um, th- then the bigger issue has maybe about this sort of issues of prestige and, and or sort of, you know, trying to climb the ladder. But I think in the typical academic setting where you have funding coming from the government, I think there's less of that relationship of, um, if that makes any sense. Yeah, like yeah. profit. I mean, yeah. the company's looking for profit. Yeah, they, and if the study shows something, they're going to make more profit. So, And it's right. like time, deadlines, too. I mean, mm-hmm. companies say, okay, you know, this this is the deadline. Yeah. And I feel like that's not how science works. And typically when you have funding from the government, you know, the project ends, but then you could say, hey, I need another year to do this. But, you know, they call it a no-cost extension. So you don't get paid, mm-hmm. but you have a whole another year to kind of finish up the project. Now, that doesn't really happen in industry. <laughs> you right. can't say, hey, g- give me a whole another year to work on this and I'll do it on my spare time. Right. They're like, you know, the, the funding's done. So, And I could see a company, you know, if they didn't get the v- results they wanted from one scientist group or a scientist, they might just go to another one and be like, hey, can you look into this too? Because we we think there's something good here. <laughs> yeah. Wink, wink. Right. <laughs> and, and I'll say at least what I'm finding here in Norway, and I think it's a trend everywhere, is that there are these private companies, these organizations that do scientific research and they attract scientists because it's really hard to compete in the typical academic sector where you have to write proposals and score well and get funding. Right. So, you know, it's it's something that I feel like I I feel the calling to often. And I think, oh, I should, maybe I should go work for one of these research organizations that just does research. But um, then, you know, this 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 issue comes about for me and I, I'm not sure. Yeah. We just need honest companies. <laughs> yeah. I, I just think when money's involved, like you were saying, you know, it's always, it shouldn't be a factor, you know? Another aspect I wanted to ask you about was what role AI will play in this, because it sounds like one of the things we're talking about is the difficulty of achieving accurate data and the role that money and funding and prestige and all that plays in that. And it seems that AI might be something that can provide an antidote to all that, since presumably it would be able to look objectively and with more complexity probably than humans can. Do you think that's true? Mm. Or what other ways do you think AI will 
mm. function in, yeah. in your research? Well, I guess I can at least speak for how it's already sort of functioning. Because I think there's there's a world where AI is super sophisticated. And I just don't think we're there quite yet. We're at mm -hmm. the realm of like ChatGPT 4 or whatever is able to write a pretty good paragraph sometimes. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> um, and I would say it's... I, 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 it's, it's already happening where people are using it to write proposals and things mm -hmm. like that. And I think generally not for the better. Uh, and it, it, it ends up being, uh, making it harder on, on the reviewers to understand what's really going on because I don't mm -hmm. think ChatGPT can write a full proposal yet. Right. Uh, so what it does is it, is it, it sort of becomes this sort of cheat sheet for some people to, to write a, a flashy paragraph and then, yeah, I, so I I don't think it's helping. I think it's muddying things, uh, mm. and that could be personal. You know, I, I I don't I I think it's still trained on us, right? And it it will always be sort of trained on us. And so that's what I was wondering. Also, is that yeah, it's even more biased, maybe. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and the problem that well, AI is such a buzzword that yeah, it's yeah, it's it, being used. Oh, gosh. It could possibly lock you like help you get funding possibly if you just throw yeah. in like oh we're, no, we're also using ai it's completely <laughs> that yeah. machine learning out actually and it's like there are funding calls that say you have to use machine learning like mm -hmm. it, it because because i think people especially the people who are making decisions they think this is a tool that we need to use and understand and i sort of agree but i think the potential so my main concern and i talk about this a lot is so these machine learning algorithms can work very well for building relationships for us. So, you know, you collect a bunch of information, you want to predict something. You can do that really well with huge data sets. Um, but it's sort of self-contained. It's an interpolation. It, mm -hmm. it doesn't extrapolate very well. So it interpolates better than anything we've ever seen before. And it's extremely complicated and it's not general which means mm. you give it the same data set, you get a slightly different answer every time. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, but the results look great. And they're better than our traditional methods that are sort of more rigorous, mathematical, somewhat simple approaches. Um, so, I mean, I, I worry about us relying too heavily on these tools because what happens is you end up creating a lot of black boxes that... Mm are hard to look into and hard to understand. And then when we're really interested in extrapolation, like what's the climate gonna be like in the future? Um, then I think these tools are really limited. And if we all get really good at using the tools, we might start to lose some of this basic ability to think critically and right. solve problems, yeah. Yeah, that reminds me of this this really interesting idea. I one time interviewed this uh, company out in San Francisco that made these really um, artisan, handcrafted, nicely made bags. And one thing the guy who ran it talked about is when you lose, like when we get to the place, when we get to the point where uh, technology is advanced enough to make these bags as well as I do, it's not that you know, like there, there's good things set, but what we lose is people who know how to think from being able to make the bag like that, because it's yeah. not just uh -huh. about learning to make the bag. It changes you as a person. 
when you become a craftsman like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there is a real danger in, it's not that you're losing the ability to make the bag. It's that you're losing the people who know how to think yeah. In that way. Yeah. 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 I, I think it's a great example. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, with knowledge building, it might be even more dangerous mm-hmm. um, to sort of go down that path. You know, I mean, imagine 50 years from now, all, all the students learn is how to plug everything into a, a neural network. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I wonder, I wonder how much of that is just and then inevitability like or if we can hold on to that like hey you actually have to learn what's going on here it's gonna be Uh, tough but like (laughs) but like in the long long time scale you know like thousands of years like that's really an interesting thought experiment especially if things get more and more complex like eventually there's going to be something that no one person fully understands and it's yeah. like what's happening right now with like Google, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it happens when we Google things. We're sort of losing right. some of that. But I just think that with these tools, we're talking about like learning, losing the ability to write a sentence, you know, mm-hmm. like, and and that's like, I don't know, like, I, I'm not interested in that world, but it, right. it might be inevitable. <laughs> well, the, the optimistic part of me says that yeah. while we lose the ability to write a sentence, which of course sounds absolutely horrifying. <laughs> um I think it it might be that we gain new abilities yeah. that we can't yet conceive of that are just as meaningful yeah. um and and probably or potentially not probably in this in this hypothetical <laughs> um more impactful and and mm. uh just as meaningful as what we experience now and but we're able to do more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's a I suppose like any tool it's a double-edged sword. Like YouTube, for example, like you could spend hours and hours on YouTube just like doing nothing, uh, just like consuming content. But at the same time, there's all of human knowledge and all of learning capable to it's, learn. It's true. Yeah. It just it just seems like the this tool is unlike anything we've it's ever different. encountered. Like the I <laughs> like the fact that we can get to a point where really we don't need to think or someone could conceivably go through life without really having to think they could just be like feeding in the information into whatever the Mm -hmm. system and then getting all the answers and and going about their day. And, Mm -hmm. and of course there's all sorts of dangers that exist there because knowing how, knowing how to think is, you know, that's what makes us human. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, it's like I, I I have conversations with colleagues who are really into these tools and like they do like see a future where it's like, yeah, I spend three hours working setting up the model and then I go play or, you know, whatever play means to you. Right. right. It, but spend time with my family, you know, go hiking. And it's like, yeah, the, it's like that's sort of been the trend. Right. With mm-hmm. with technology. Um uh, and I don't know, and I'm usually very optimistic. <laughs> I'm like generally a very optimistic person, yeah. but like for whatever reason, this sort of starts to get me. And it's, you know what it, I, I will admit is part of it is fear that I'm going to lose what makes me special mm-hmm. as a scientist, as a thinker, you know, I'm, I'm good at writing. I'm good at critical thinking. You know, these are like my only skills, <laughs> you know, in, in, in some way. And so I think I'm threatened. So I'm, I'm biased against this in some way. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's 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 uh yeah, I get that for sure. It's it's pretty uh it's intimidating in a lot of ways. And also That's just, fine. I mean, I'm I'm teaching and so I'm around students who are just beginning to uh you know have this tool and I mean, the impact it's had on them, I think, has so far been relatively small, but it's increasing all the time. And mm -hmm. it's it's already difficult enough to get them to write a paragraph, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and the thing that's actually really interesting and, and something that I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to navigate is that we have a lot of international students at our school who don't speak English particularly well. They're just learning. And the translating tools now are so sophisticated that they can write a sentence in Vietnamese and uh, the computer will, you know, the, the program will spit out something that's pretty complex in English. I mean, it's clear that a translator wrote it because mm. translators love adjectives. I don't know what it is. I found that <laughs> AI loves adjectives. Mm. Um but, and also students, even English students who don't want to spend as much time writing can write a very simple sentence and it'll write like a paragraph or something based on that sentence. So mm -hmm. I think the the big problem to me is it's not us. I think we'll actually probably be able to use the tools pretty well, but mm -hmm. it's the, the generations that come after us that mm -hmm. will not really see a use. Right. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so another thing I'd like to get into is, so Daniel is also a music, a musician and he's had, his music has had millions of plays. <laughs> That's kind of crazy. Uh, on Spotify and, and such. And I'm curious how you, well, first off, you have an ability just to finish songs <laughs> so well like yeah. you can rattle off an album and mm. which, which seems like and the same amount of time that would take me to finish a song and so i'm curious how you do that and then also how you fit it into the rest of your work and your life yeah i'm like super stubborn and i think it's the same thing that makes me pretty good at science it's like i don't really give up right and like i don't like I have very few unfinished things that I've like, and very few things that I haven't even released. Like I, I like I always sort of recycle and recycle and keep chug, you know, chipping away at it until it's something that I feel like I'm proud of and I can share. Uh, so it's like, and I feel like that's the same thing that made me good at at at, at, at help. That same thing that reason I completed my PhD was just like perseverance. Mm -hmm. Uh, nice. so I don't know if I was born with it or like, cause it's also kind of be annoying sometimes. Cause I like really <laughs> kind of don't give up and I keep bugging everything. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah. And the, the time thing, I don't know, man. Sometimes like, it's like, there's so much time in the day. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, sometimes, uh, you know, you can get so much done when you're like on it. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like one thing with me and music is like, I don't really work on it if I'm not on it. You know, if I'm, if I'm not feeling it, I don't really do it mm. because I don't have that pressure. Um, and honestly, even with science, I mean, <laughs> I hope my boss doesn't listen to this, but <laughs> like, if I'm not feeling it, I don't really do it, you know? And, yeah. and then when I do feel it, I, I, I it's like, 
like there's a momentum and there's like a real efficiency that comes out of it all. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I'm interested if, if you've noticed any similarities between your scientific process and your creative process. And the reason I bring that up is because there was something you said earlier about when, when you notice a trend uh, that you didn't expect to see and you just start following that thread. <laughs> yeah. That sounds yeah. a lot like my own creative process in a way. And mm. so I was wondering if that, what your creative process is like and if there's any similarities oh. with science. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it's like the same thing, I think. Mm. I, and I, I like, especially with like electronic music and, and all the programming, all the stuff that you do on the computer, like so much of it is methods based. And, you know, uh, so for me, it's like, it's like the same thing. Mm -hmm. it's, I'm, it's cool that you heard it because I, you know, I don't, I don't really think about it much, but I feel like I don't really put a different hat on when I create music, except that I wish I'd like to be better at like, let, like not, like I feel like I put a little bit of pressure to make it good. Mm. I think sometimes that is not good <laughs> for creating, you know, it's like in the creative space, like anything goes, it's not so much like that in science. I mean, yeah, there's no stupid question. And I think that's something that's important to, to keep in mind, but like, you can't publish anything, <laughs> you know, right. uh, but right. with, you can create any, anything you can make music and you know, it's, 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 yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting yes. point. That's something I I've always struggled with because I, I, there's a part of me that, that totally agrees with the argument that sort of the, the fewer limitations you put onto yourself, the freer you are in the creative moment, the mm -hmm. more energetic or just something that work will be. But then there's another part of me, which I think usually wins, which is the part that wants to just labor over something creative and just, just tweak it endlessly until it's perfect by my mm. standards. I'm not saying it's perfect in, in any objective way, but just perfect of how I want it to be. And so I don't know, I go back and forth on that because yeah, I think that um, there's no right or wrong in creative mm. things, but there is a part of me that really feels like there is better and worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's, I agree. I mean, I think the, the universe agrees, not the universe, but the, the pe people agree, right? right. That, um, the universe right. maybe also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but, uh, but it's just like, sometimes that labor becomes, it just, it hurts a little bit. I mean, <laughs> maybe that's why, maybe it should, maybe it should hurt. Maybe that's part mm -hmm. of why it works. Sometimes I feel like it has to. Like that's the yeah yeah, it's part of the journey. Yeah, it makes it feel meaningful, but also I I I can think of plenty of examples of things that happened without it that were yeah exactly. I feel like that's the that's the like for me like I think the number one song I have that's mm -hmm. got the most plays was like made without any care for <laughs> labor. You know, mm -hmm. like there's like fuzz in the background. <laughs> you know, I recorded it with my laptop microphone. You know, the guitar is out of tune. Uh, and it all came together like in a very short period of time. And I think I was just free, you know, mm -hmm. and I didn't feel like I had to be good in it, but it did come out really good. Mm -hmm. uh, did you know that at the time? Did you feel it at the time? It's a really good question. Like, 
I definitely thought it was good. Did I think it was better than other things? I, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I. I don't think if like if there was like if you asked me, okay, which of these you know twenty songs is going to be the hit? I don't think I would have seen it at that moment. Has yeah. has the uh, response that's gotten changed your impression of it? How does external feedback yeah. influence how you feel about your own music? Like, okay, what I want is general external feedback. Not this song, but just like, your music's good. <laughs> because, <laughs> because now I feel a lot like, oh, I can't make a song like that anymore. Mm. Or like, people want me to make a song like that. Right. And and especially with that one, like, I, I don't even know, like, I guess I could like decompose it and, and figure out how, how I did it. But like, uh, I, this pressure, it starts to become a pressure. Uh, mm. Like I love the I I really love the feedback the the positive feedback and I think it really helps me uh, feel like what I'm doing you know matters in some way but um, when it's all about that song yeah, <laughs> you know then it, yeah so I don't know mm. interesting yeah and so the the ending song in this podcast in this episode is going to be uh, Dan and I are making a song oh, together yeah. I'm very excited and to hear so, the next bit. Yeah, so you're going to hear it uh, shortly. I have one like final question for you guys. Uh, it's very broad, but uh, and I don't know who to answer first, but maybe Alan, because you're A. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've written, written that way of my life. <laughs> Actually, no, Alan, not first. Uh. <laughs> um, what is your relationship to the ocean? Well, the thing that comes to mind first is I spent every childhood summer uh, living with my grandparents at their beach house in Rhode Island. Mm. And it was this this beautiful land that was uh, on this thin little peninsula. And so there was water on each side. And then in the front of the house was this little cove. And then it opened up into a bay, which then if you rode the boat out, would go into the ocean. And so I just spent all my summers there for two months. I mean, basically the entire summer with my cousin and my grandparents and, uh, and my family would come down. And so just going swimming every day and listening to the water. And uh, it just has a very special place in my heart. It's mm. interesting because I've not spent nearly as much time on the ocean or on the water since I've been older. and. I still love it, but there's almost a part of me that that was so special. And now particularly that my grandparents are gone, that it's like, I, I almost just want to find other things and do other things and keep that as this sort of pristine thing. And of course I still go to the water and I still enjoy it, but to have that level of relationship with it, it's, uh, I mean, it's just, it means a lot to me. It's, it's, it's sort of this, this sacred thing. Mm. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. It's <laughs> very touching. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Let's see. For me, so I grew up in San Diego, um, like twenty minutes away from the ocean. But our our family, we didn't really go very much. Um, we went maybe a few times every summer, 
So as a kid, I, I mean, I liked it. I enjoyed the sand and boogie boarding. Um, but I wouldn't say it was much more than that. Um, but as I, you know, as I got older, um, I, I just feel like an immense sense of calmness at the beach or when I think about the ocean. Um, although it can fluctuate, <laughs> the ocean itself can be <laughs> very rough itself. Um, and especially in the last year before I moved to Argentina, I went quite a bit to the ocean. And what stands out more than anything is just the day just instantly gets better. <laughs> like I could be in the ocean. I could be in the ocean for five minutes. And then it's like, you just feel better the whole day. And I don't know why that is. Uh, I don't know if it's like the cold, especially in San Diego, the ocean's pretty cold or the saltiness or I don't know. You just feel alive. You feel, and, it feels like connected to something bigger yeah, than that too. Exactly. Mm. And even though I, I'm not a surfer, that's like one of the things that I'm, I know in my lifetime, like I will learn how to do. It's like one of the checklists, like bucket list items is like, I'm going to learn how to surf. And it's beautiful when you see like elderly people surfing and people just do it their entire lives, which I think is amazing. Um, and unfortunately in Buenos Aires, it's like a kind of, it's like a estuary and it's really dirty water. So you can't really go in there. Um, but I would love to wind up uh, somewhere close to the ocean. I think. What about, what about you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I thought I would just ask. Yeah, I mean, I I can relate a lot to what you guys say. I mean, I was just for every reason I was thinking a lot about how there's people there's people who've never seen the ocean. <laughs> uh, like there are lots of people, uh, and um, but yeah, you know, I've gotten to be in remote parts of the ocean, like out at sea, and I've gotten to scuba dive. I've gotten to be in a submersible and go like <laughs> way down. a thousand feet below. Wow. Uh, yeah, and all of these experiences leave me just um, yeah at peace, uh, in awe, uh, mostly awe. Like mm. it's just so massive mm. and so complex and so like on all scales, small and large. And uh, it's 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 part of our planet's lungs. You know, it's just as important as the the Amazon rainforest. You know, so. Uh, yeah, it's uh, and it's also like a great source of data for me, <laughs> so I I exploit it, you know. Uh, but uh, usually, but yeah, so yeah, I, I I just love it. I love the ocean. I absolutely love the ocean. So it's, and I think it's really cool to hear other people talk about their ex relationship with it because I, I was super touched to hear about your going to your grandparents' house, and I I could feel how important that was and how special uh, those summers were. Um, Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, now I got to ask about the submersible though, because that's such a <laughs> unique thing. Um, I, I just, I I've thought about particularly when that thing happened last summer with the yeah. Titanic yeah, submersible. This is, this is like two months after that. <laughs> I thought about how, uh, just, 
terrifying. I had this question actually that I was asking people is, would you rather go to the moon or to the Titanic in a submersible? <laughs> yeah. um, and so it just the idea of going a thousand, a thousand feet, you said? Yeah, that was about what we I mean, did. that just sounds wild. What was that like? It was, it was, so it was like super barren. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like there wasn't much there, uh, which was kind of disappointing. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it was like, it was kind of like maybe how, you know, you might feel when you meditate, you have like a long meditation and nothing happens, but you feel like okay with it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it wasn't scary at all, but I think part of it was wow. because I was with a very professional group Mm-hmm. And I felt like they had it covered. Um, uh, and there's so much, as uh, you know, I said there's nothing there, but there's also so much there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much like small critters. And it's like, it's like if you could go inside the soil and see all the little mites and insects and bugs, but they're all out and surrounding you. Um, wow. Yeah, it, it was really cool and interesting. And it's like, I crave doing it again because I got what I felt like I got like not a great experience because Mm -hmm. where we were and the conditions, it was kind of murky. Uh, But like, I really want to figure out how to go again. So I kind of understand why these Titanic, well, I don't know why they were going to Titanic. I I, like, sure. That's interesting, but I'd rather just go down there. You know, I don't really care where, Uh, Mm -hmm. well, maybe I do a little bit, but yeah. Uh, But so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. Wow. All right, well, um, well, thanks so much for, for joining us. Uh, it's been great having you on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, guys. This is super cool. Yeah, yeah it was fun. Well, enjoy the music. Peace. Thank you.